Welcome. Welcome to Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis. I am Donald Meisel, minister of this congregation and moderator of this ongoing series of Thursday noon town hall forums. We present these forums because we are convinced that churches have a special responsibility to look at the tough issues facing us all from an ethical perspective. One way to do that is to provide voices of conscience in a given realm of concern with a platform from which to speak together with an alert audience like this one. Ecology, ecological justice is the theme, the agenda for today. And the voice of conscience is that of Russell W. Peterson. Mr. Peterson was governor of the state of Delaware from 1969 to 1973. Before that, he was an executive with the DuPont Company. From 1973 to 76, he served as chairperson of the President's Council on Environmental Quality under both Presidents Nixon and Ford. He was appointed by President Carter, a member of the Commission to Investigate the Nuclear Accident at Three Mile Island. Currently, he is president of the National Audubon Society, consisting of over 450,000 members. In the past, the Audubon Society has been regarded as a genteel group of bird watchers. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, and I'm certain there are many avid bird watchers here today, and in fact, I brought a bird watcher book given me before the program to be signed by our guest. But Mr. Peterson has pressed to make the Audubon Society more aggressive and more outspoken in the effort to combat ecological illiteracy, ecological injustice. If atomic holocaust is a primary concern for today, and it certainly is, is the slow burn of ecological disaster any less ominous? Mr. Peterson was born in Wisconsin, and so in that sense, we welcome him as a near neighbor. And the fact that he is of Swedish background gives him points in Minnesota before he even says a word. And I'm delighted to be able to announce to you, if you don't already know, that the Swedish government, assisted by two prominent Swedish organizations, elected him Swedish American of the Year this year. So uh, for many good reasons, Mr. Russell W. Peterson, we welcome you here today. <laughs> Thank you, Donald Meisel. Good noon, everyone. I appreciate very much the opportunity to be here in Minneapolis and to be able to participate in this very important forum. I commend you, Dr. Meisel, for initiating this along with your committee. It's an important series, and I want to thank you for the opportunity to come here today and to speak at the forum. Have you ever been told that you 
or the organization you work for are for the birds? <laughs> well, that's said about us at the Audubon Society all the time, and it pleases us no end. We are for the birds, and we're proud of it. Nowadays, however, when that sort of comment is leveled at me by James Watt or Ed Meese, or some other member of the Reagan administration, I realize it's not intended as praise. It's in the same league as being called an environmental extremist. I'll say something more about that later. But first, I'd like to talk about a basic premise of the environmental movement in this country. The premise is that a healthy economy and a healthy environment go hand in hand. The first depends on the second. It's not or should not be a matter of environment versus economy or jobs versus pollution controls. The demand of the American people for clean air and water is now established, not as a fad, but as a permanent requirement of our way of life. It is important to recognize that our free enterprise system is responding to the new market for clean air and clean water. Our laboratories and factories are now producing the ideas, the processes, and the products necessary to satisfy that demand. In so doing, they are creating hundreds of thousands of jobs and numerous new investment opportunities. Yet we still encounter the argument that investments in environmental production, environmental protection, are non-productive, that they are pure cost, that they drain funds badly needed for productive investment in other parts of the economy. In good times, such objections might be dismissed as routine complaints about the new and unfamiliar. These days, however, they are given new force because of our ailing economy. Unemployment, as you well know, is sky high and rising. Interest rates are out of sight, or at least out of reach for most of us. These factors are being used as an excuse to weaken or eliminate environmental regulations. We've got to relax our standards for a while, the critics say and give our economy a chance to recover. This argument has a surface persuasiveness, yet one can dig a little deeper in our economic data and argue quite the reverse. They say let the free market take care of the problem. They should listen to Milton Friedman, the great conservative economist, premier champion of the free enterprise system, who recognizes that we can't have clean air and clean water without regulating the marketplace. Since the Clean Air Act was passed in 1970, for example, it has been saving some 14,000 lives a year and over $20 billion annually in reduced damage to health, property, and crops. The Council on Environmental Quality 
has shown that dollar benefits from air pollution controls alone outweigh costs by about $5 billion each year. The manufacture of stack gas scrubbers for factories and catalytic converters for cars has led to a new air cleaning industry, which like the air cooling industry of a few years ago, is becoming an important part of our economy. As for the business of cleaning up the nation's polluted waterways, the Council on Environmental Quality has estimated that by 1985, the total annual benefits from the nation's water pollution control legislation will amount to about $12.3 billion per year. Are pollution controls inflationary? Scarcely at all. Federal environmental regulation is estimated to add between one and two-tenths of a percentage point to the rate at which prices are increasing. Yes, it does cost us something to have a clean and healthy environment, but it's a bargain any way you look at it. A catalytic converter on an automobile, a device which reduces emissions of unhealthy carbon monoxide and acid rain producing nitrogen oxides adds about $50 to the cost of a new Ford or Chevy. The cost of stack gas scrubbers on the smokestacks of electric utilities, devices that greatly reduce the sulfur dioxide emissions, which are a prime contributor to the acid rain that is destroying aquatic life in our lakes and rivers at an alarming rate, the cost of these pollution controls would increase monthly utility bills by one half of 1% in Minnesota. Overall, the economic benefits of environmental protection clearly exceed the cost. Much harder to measure, but every bit as real, is the contribution of environmentalism to growth, growth in the quality of our lives. Normally, we measure growth by increases in the gross national product. GNP is a useful tool for measuring sheer quantity of goods and services produced, but it is a poor measure of growth in the quality of life. GNP lumps together activities regardless of whether they enhance or detract from the quality of life. For example, if we produce a million dollars worth of carcinogens, this weighs as much on the GNP scale as a million dollars worth of antibiotics. If we hire a housekeeper, this counts towards GNP. But when one spouse manages a house, it doesn't count. Teaching counts, learning doesn't. GNP fails to take into account the health and enjoyment we derive from pure air and water or from a day spent at a wildlife refuge, a national park, or a wilderness area. GNP cannot calculate the value of a sunset seen through the unpolluted air from the shore of a pristine Minnesota lake. We need another yardstick that will help us measure quality. 
The Overseas Development Council has the right idea. They use infant mortality, life expectancy, and literacy as criteria for what they call their physical quality of life index. The quality of future life in this country and elsewhere is the subject of another recent study by the Council on Environmental Quality and the Department of State. It is called the Global 2000 Report. It is a rather sobering document, but by no means a standard gloom and doom prognosis. It does not predict what will occur. It depicts conditions that are likely to develop if there are no changes in public policies, institutions, or rate of technological advance and if there is no nuclear war. This, of course, being the ultimate environmental threat. The conditions which the Global 2000 report does depict provide us with a strong incentive for changing some current trends. That incentive is the opportunity of leaving our grandchildren a future worth living. If we don't change some of our ways, here is where we're headed, according to the Global 2000 report. The world in the year 2000 will be more crowded, more polluted, less stable ecologically, and more vulnerable to disruption than the world we now live in. Serious stress involving population, resources, and environment are clearly visible ahead. Despite greater material output, the world's people will be poorer in many ways than they are today. For hundreds of millions of the desperately poor, the outlook for food and other necessities of life will be no better. And for hundreds of millions, it will be worse. Unless, and this qualifier is cause for optimism, unless the nations of the world with the United States playing a leading role, act decisively to alter the current trends. As currently projected, the world's population will grow from 4.4 billion today to 6.4 billion in the year 2000, an increase of 45%. The rate of growth will slow slightly from 1.8% today to 1.7%. But in sheer numbers, population will be growing faster in the year 2000 than it is today, with 100 million people added each year compared with 80 million in 1980. It took a whole century for the world to add its second billion people. And this milestone was reached when I started high school. And now we are adding the fifth billion in only 10 years. And 90% of this growth will occur in the poorest countries. During the 1990s, world oil production will reach maximum capacity and then start its long decline to zero. Then oil prices, when it peaks, then oil prices will really increase having a particularly devastating impact on the less developed countries. 
a critical milestone in the economic history of the world, was passed in 1970 when the production of oil in our lower 48 states peaked. For the one quarter of humanity that depends primarily on wood for fuel, their outlook, given present trends, is bleak indeed. Needs for fuel wood will exceed available supplies by about 25% before the end of the century. Serious deterioration of agricultural soils will occur worldwide due to erosion, loss of organic matter, desertification, salinization, and other causes. Already an area of crop and grassland the size of Maine is becoming barren wasteland each year. Many plant and animal species, perhaps as many as 20% of all species on Earth will be lost as their habitats vanish, especially in tropical forests. This is extremely serious. The rainforests are perhaps the Earth's most important incubator of life, a breeding ground that has produced more than half the species known to us human beings. A gene pool that may include unknown medicines and grains that naturally resist pests and disease. The loss of tropical forests will mean the biological impoverishment of the planet. But again, we must remember that these projections are based on the assumption that national policies throughout the world will remain essentially unchanged. But in fact, dramatic change is already beginning to occur. In some areas of the globe, forests are being systematically replanted after cutting. Some nations are taking steps to reduce soil losses and spread of deserts. Family planning is becoming better understood. And in some places like China and Indonesia, Family planning has worked a miracle in markedly reducing birth rates. Interest in energy conservation is growing, and large sums are being invested in exploring alternatives to petroleum dependence. There are no quick fixes. That's one lesson we've learned in recent years. As Global 2000 makes compellingly clear the only solutions to the problems of population, resources, and the environment are complex and long-term. But we can solve these problems if we put our minds to it. During the past couple of decades, the United States has provided a leadership model to the rest of the world in the field of environmental protection. Although we are currently rapidly abandoning that leadership, we need to turn it around and get back in the leadership. Just this week in Nairobi, Kenya, Ann Gorsuch, the leader of the U.S. delegation to the United Nations Environment Program, displayed an embarrassing lack of understanding of the global environmental issues. And the reporters have said it's obvious that Japan has taken a leadership on the environmental scene abandoned by the United States. Many of us trace the modern environmental awakening, the national commitment to halt deterioration of our air, land, and water 
and to preserve our wildlife and natural places to the publication in 1962 of Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. Where Rachel Carson called attention to the pesticide poisoning of our environment. I mentioned to Dr. Meisel earlier this morning that one of the problems throughout history has plagued humanity has been our conspiracy of silence. We don't speak out on things we know are wrong. And he said one of the results of conspiracy of silence is more silent springs. Over the past decade, Republicans and Democrats have worked together to produce a remarkable set of environmental laws, a truly outstanding bipartisan effort. The Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, the Toxic Substances Control Act, the Endangered Species Act, the Surface Mining and Reclamation Act, the Wilderness Act, and many others. Taken together, these laws represent one of the great bipartisan legislative achievements of the 20th century. They reflect the will of the great majority of Americans. Yet these same laws are now under assault by an administration that is ideologically opposed to federal regulations, especially those regulations that place environmental pollution restraints on business and industry. Let me tell you about a meeting I had recently with Ed Meese, the counselor to President Reagan. I was with the heads of two other national conservation organizations, the National Wildlife Federation and the Sierra Club, when we sat down with Mr. Meese in his office. It was, in a way, an historic occasion. It was the first time since Ronald Reagan took office that any environmental leaders had been invited to the White House. Mr. Meese opened the discussion by telling us what a fine environmentalist Mr. Reagan had been as governor of California. The president, he said, had brought this same commitment to Washington. Mr. Meese contended that our concerns, environmentalist concerns, stem from what he called misperceptions misperceptions. We replied that our concerns were based on hard facts. For example, the drastic downgrading of the Environmental Protection Agency. EPA was established by Congress to enforce the federal laws to protect our air and water and land. At a time when EPA's responsibilities are doubling, the administration is attempting to cut the EPA's staff and budget in half. We explained to Mr. Meese that the firings and budget cuts were demoralizing and, in fact, dismantling the Environmental Protection Agency. There's not a shred of truth in that allegation, Mr. Meese said. We mentioned energy policy as another example of how the administration had radically departed from the course advocated by environmentalists and favored by most Americans. The president's team is proposing a 94% reduction 
the virtual elimination of federal support for energy conservation and the development of solar power. At the same time, this administration, which supposedly champions a free market economy, has vastly increased federal subsidies for nuclear power. Nuclear power is the safest and most economic route, Mr. Meese replied. And then he dismissed solar power with the question, what can a few windmills do? The president's counselor spoke on the need to revitalize the economy, and we agreed 100%. But we challenge the administration's unsupported claim that environmental regulations are hurting the economy. I explained to him, as I did earlier in this speech, how the very opposite is true. For a president who Mr. Meese describes as a good environmentalist, it seemed odd, we said, that Ronald Reagan touched on only one environmental matter in his State of the Union message. And that was Mr. Reagan's expression of support for a bill now being considered in the House of Representatives, which would amend the Clean Air Act to include the wish list of the polluting industries. This amendment would allow more pollution from automobiles and industry, more acid rain in our lakes and rivers, and more unhealthy air in our lungs. In response to our concern, Mr. Meese replied, this bill is a reasonable compromise. Yes, it is a compromise, all right. It would compromise the right of present and future Americans to a healthy environment. Then we spoke of Mr. Reagan's action of the previous day. The president had just listed the ban on compound 1080 for poisoning coyotes on public lands, the federal lands that you and I own. 10 years earlier, President Nixon had banned 1080 for use against coyotes because it was killing all sorts of other wildlife as well. Eagles and hawks and badgers and foxes and raccoons and martens and other non-offending animals. This poison was indiscriminate cruel and ineffective. Its use against predators was therefore banned. It's about time we listen to the sheep ranchers, Mr. Meese said. We left the meeting shaking our heads, but very clear on where our priorities lay. We needed to work as we had never worked before, to get our environment back to get our government back on the right track. The apathy of the Reagan administration toward environmental values, the outright contempt for environmental controls is a curious throwback to an early era. It is, I am convinced, only a temporary aberration, for it runs counter to the public interest and will not be tolerated for very long by the American people. My chief concern, however, is that the administration could, in only four years' time, cause lasting damage. A national forest, now devastated, could take centuries to recover. A parkland, not now acquired, could be lost forever to development. 
a proposed wilderness area open for oil exploration or timber cutting can never qualify for inclusion in the national wilderness system. A lake sterilized by acid rain might never, as human time is measured, be restored to health. A species of animal or plant that is rendered extinct through careless human activity is lost for good. Extinction is forever. A premature human death from air pollution is a tragic and irretrievable loss. I believe that we can prevent such permanent damage and actually come out ahead by being vigilant, involved, and outspoken. I do not believe that the Reagan administration will permanently succeed in its efforts to undermine environmental protection. The American people, if the opinion polls are any indication, do not want the great environmental gains of recent years to be reversed. Not in the name of economic recovery or national security or inflation fighting or multiple use or states' rights or whatever excuse of the moment might be. For example, a recent public opinion poll by Lewis Harris revealed the following. By a massive margin of 83 to 17%, the public wants no relaxation of existing federal regulation of air pollution. Mr. Harris found that Americans resolutely oppose any attempt to reverse the environmental gains of the past 10 years. And this attitude has strengthened since the Reagan administration took office. So what can you and I do to see that environmental protection is strengthened? One way is for each of you corporate leaders here in the audience to serve as an ecological conscience in your own company, to urge your colleagues and influence your company policy to take a long-term view to look beyond this year's operating statement and balance sheet to the long-term health and prosperity of this country, just as we do as parents in caring about the kind of world we leave our children. Let me tell you of an interesting incident that I had that illustrates how we compartmentalize our minds. When I was running for re-election for governor of Delaware, I agree with my campaign committee that I would go to six people, each of whom had given a large sum of money toward my first campaign four years earlier, and they would raise the rest of the money. So I went to one of these very wealthy persons, and he said to me, why should I support you? Everything you've done as governor has been against my interests. You passed that so-and-so Coastal Zone Act, you raise the taxes on high-income people. Why should I support you? I said, there's one good reason. You are interested in the welfare of your children and grandchildren. And he thought a minute and said, by gosh, you're right. How much do you want? And he wrote out a check for exactly what I asked for. That's a true story. 
Another way to protect our air and land and water and wildlife is through citizen action. Toward this end, my organization, the, ones that, the one that's for the birds, has launched a citizen mobilization campaign to inform members and other concerned individuals about what is happening today in Washington and to let citizens know what they can do about it. The price is right. It won't cost you anything to sign up and receive the material. And if you're interested, let me know or let Ed Brigham, who was here with us today, the regional vice president for our activities, and we will see that you got the information regularly from our Washington office. I, I began my comments with a reference to economics. I like to end up with a quote by Robert Hamron, an economist who takes a broad view. The modern economic perspective is faulty, inherently dangerous, and must be corrected, he writes. It is ironic that the new guiding economic philosophy of the day, supply-side economics, focuses solely on financial capital, neglecting completely the ultimate supply center, matter and energy. The time has come for economists to acknowledge the very crucial fact that although the books of the marketplace seem to balance and record economic progress, the books of nature, which render the real accounting for the human race, run increasing deficits. If we are to have a true supply-side economics, he says, it will have to incorporate the fact that biological capital is equally as important as financial capital for achieving long-run sustainable growth." End of quote. Mr. Hammond is seeing things whole, as the ecologists do, as most Americans have learned to do. We must make sure, you and I, that the holistic view prevails. Our children and grandchildren and the others who will someday have to live with what we leave them will thank us for it. And finally, you and I have a moral obligation to protect life, all life, plant life, animal life, including human life, and those things so essential to life, the air we breathe, the water we drink, and the land where we grow our food. We are truly the stewards of life. Let us be good stewards. Thank you. said so aptly that the gross national product is no true measure of the quality of life, and we can put no gross national product measure on what you've shared of your energy with us, and it's uh, a point of personal pride to me that you chose in the context of that significant statement to share that brief sentence that I 
uh, shared with you in the, in the library a few moments ago. Let me indicate that our process is as follows. We'll take a couple of minutes now to permit those who must leave to do so, but also to permit questions that are being or have been written on yellow cards to be passed to the aisles. They'll be brought quickly forward and uh, gone through, sorted out at this table, and then as quickly as possible we'll, we'll get to what you have in mind to put to Russell W. Peterson, our guest today. Just a word to our radio audience. This program is originating at Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. You are listening to our Thursday noon town hall forum. The overarching theme is Voices of Conscience, Key Issues in Ethical Perspective. The speaker today is Russell W. Peterson, president of the National Audubon Society, who has just made a very significant statement on ecological justice. And now the floor is ready for questions. Peterson, I'll just put one question of my own. You, you spoke of acid rain. We're the, the uh, state of 10,000 lakes. Uh, would you care to comment on that issue a, a little more? It's one that we're very uh, conscious of in this area. Yes, the acid rain problem has been recognized now for about 15 years as a serious problem. Scandinavian countries are the ones that got deeply concerned about it and made an issue of it at the United Nations Environment Conference in Stockholm back in 1972. Uh, they were being besieged by acid rain coming from Great Britain and from West Germany. In the intervening 10 years, we learned much, much more about it. Overwhelming evidence that this is a serious problem. And yet people who are involved in releasing the precursors of acid rain, the sulfur dioxide, nitrogen oxides, continue to contend we don't have enough information. We have to study it and study it and study it. And that is the current position of the Reagan administration. But groups like the National Academy of Science, their counterparts in other countries, organization after organization, many, many universities, have come up with data which demonstrate that when you burn, a fuel that contains sulfur, for example, you emit sulfur dioxide. When it goes up in the air, it reacts with the components of the air to produce sulfuric acid. The pollutants from such stacks used to irritate the neighbors in the community where they were produced, and so they built taller stacks so the wind would carry it beyond the immediate community off into more distant areas. We know that the rain coming down, downwind from such stacks, contains sulfuric acid. And we know that, that rain falling in lakes has markedly increased the acidity of the lakes by well over a hundredfold. Lakes where they have been measuring the pH, the measure of acidity, for many years have shown this tremendous change, particularly true in places like the Adirondacks and in Eastern Canada, as well as in Scandinavian countries. 
But now more and more data is being developed here in the Midwest, out in the far west, to show that it is happening all over the country. And when you put fish and other life in water, different acidity, you find that they can't survive. Some species can't survive at given levels of acidity, the kind of acidity that we now have in these lakes. So the objective now is to get the Congress to pass some regulations to limit the release of sulfur dioxide and nitrogen oxides. And there's a bill in Congress right now, bills in the Congress toward that end. The, I want another attempt in Congress to re lower the emission standards or soften the standards for the release of nitrogen oxides from automobiles to double the amount now allowed. And that would add to making the problem more serious than less serious. So we have to go to bat to get behind legislation which reduce the emissions of sulfur dioxide and nitrogen oxides if we're going to solve the acid rain problem. You grew up in Wisconsin and you know Minnesota, you know the syndrome of our liking to have a cabin up at the lake. That's what's the background of this question. An important part of the Minnesota mindset and lifestyle suggests a home or apartment in the city and cabin at the lake. Many lakes are no longer beautiful uh, places with water pollution and the balance of plants, birds, and wildlife disrupted. What suggestions do you have to make us, to make to us in our desire for the best in the urban and rural environments? My suggestion is that you make as many people informed as possible about the limits to what we can do with certain of our resources. Obviously, in any one lake, all of us can't have a cabin around. <laughs> all of us can't go to the opera at the same time. There are many, many limits to what we all can do. But all of us can have a, an exciting and rewarding experience with nature if we look at the many natural resources we have and protect them and plan their management as is done in many places. Now this morning I visited the mountain, the, the Minnesota Valley Wildlife Refuge. And here is, you know better than I, is the plan, the master plan for taking 12,000 acres, pretty small part of big Minnesota, 12,000 acres located right here in this metropolitan area and set it aside as a wildlife refuge. And kind of unusual to have such a wonderful environment right close to home. But if that can be protected and people have been allowed to go there and see it and enjoy it, many people can have at least some hours of uh, exposure to the wonderful environment here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when the Boundary Waters canoe area was created, there was an attempt to protect the land for all of us to enjoy that area, not to let it go to a place where signs go up and say, no trespassing, keep out. Mm -hmm. So only a few could enjoy it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, do the majority of middle-class Americans have a lifestyle that unnecessarily exploits the earth and its resources? Perhaps that's related. Well, I think that we affluent Americans 
with our cars and our snowmobiles and our bulldozers, our toxic chemicals and so on, do have a devastating impact on the environment. A few of us wouldn't have much of an impact. Many years ago when our population was low and all we had to beat on the environment with was our hands and our feet in a hole, Mother Nature could take all that abuse and recover quite readily. All the wastes we got rid of, Mother Nature absorbed them quite readily. But as the population kept growing ever more rapidly, and as each of us got tools, including toxic chemicals, each person had a much, much greater impact on the environment. And the cumulative impact of those two things, the growing population and each of us doing more damage, mm -hmm. was something Mother Nature couldn't cope with. Can't even absorb the waste that chemists like Peterson have helped to create in our society. And so now we must recognize that and put some, be concerned about growth in human population. Be concerned about what we and our individual lifestyles are doing to destroy the very thing that we like to enjoy.